That looks like that could be lots of fun. See all those kids? What fun. Well, good morning. We continue to walk through the books of Samuel. We've been walking with the Gospel Project, which is the spiritual foundation classes that have been going on. And um, you've heard this past month, Pastor Mike talk about God praises patience, leadership, and kindness. And today we see that God praises forgiveness. And we have seen demonstrated in King David those characteristics of patience, kindness, and leadership. We've seen David go from being the shepherd to king that God had anointed. He defeated Goliath, the giant, and he waited patiently for his time to take over the throne. He had opportunities, as Mike preached on, to kill Saul, and yet he waited for his time that God appointed time. David is also described as a man after God's own heart. And we see that he was a king that sought after God. He wanted to do what God called him to do. And then we move into 2 Samuel chapter 11. That we will see soon, David is human like the rest of us. Will you pray with me? Father God, we come to you and we give you praise. We thank you, Lord, for the mercy and grace that you shower down upon us. And Father, as we hear your word today, God, speak to us. Shine your light into those places of darkness, those places that we've kept hidden, that we know we can't hide from you, but we try to hide from others. And Lord, I ask that you would just shine your light into those places and bring your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. So we see King David at the beginning of chapter 11 make some decisions that lead him down a slippery slope. Very slippery. These are the moments when I just want to go, David, 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 what were you thinking? But we see that David was home from war, so that means all the other men were at war. David was home. He was just out taking a walk on the rooftop one evening and noticed a beautiful woman, the scripture says. Now, I once heard preached that if you are driving down the street and you notice an attractive person and you keep going, okay, you just noticed that person was attractive. But if you decide to circle the block for a second look, we might have a problem, something called lust. So David took a a second look. He drove around the block because he inquired into, who is this beautiful woman? He comes to find out it's Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. The scripture makes it very clear. She was married, and yet David sends for her lies with her, and then he receives word that Bathsheba is pregnant. Uh Uh-oh. Uh-oh. So David, being king, after all, has great power and influence. And so he does what any king, right, would do with power and influence. He sends word out to Joab, who's the commander of the army, and says, hey, would you send Uriah home? Okay. Okay. So Uriah comes home. 
And so David's plan was, well, Uriah will go home, sleep with his wife. Nobody will ever know the difference, what happened, where that baby came from. However, Uriah seems to um, have a little bit more moral standing in that moment than David had hoped for. Because Uriah says, oh no, I can't go home and eat and drink and sleep with my wife because all the other men are out fighting. They're laying out in the open. How could I go home and enjoy those pleasures? So David's plan B, was that plan B? I don't know, something didn't work. But he comes up with another plan. He thought, hmm, I'll get Uriah drunk. That should work. Invites Uriah over for dinner, provides lots of alcohol for him, apparently, and he gets him drunk. And now at this point, he's thinking, oh, yeah, Uriah will go home to Bathsheba, but not not so. Uriah decides, nope, he still is not going to go home to his wife. So David's plans just keep getting foiled. It just isn't working out. So David decides, well, I guess we're going to have to eliminate Uriah. So he sends word back with Uriah to Joab. I mean, Uriah like carried his own death sentence to, to Joab and says, put David in, put Uriah in the front lines so he can be killed. Okay. So Joab follows the orders of the king and he puts David or puts Uriah in the front lines and Uriah is killed. Oh, wow. You talk about a lot of power and influence. We see David go from noticing a beautiful woman and now he's lusted, he's committed adultery, he's included other people into sin as well. And now he has murdered someone. So chapter 11 ends with David had displeased God. Hmm. Wow. So as we think about that displeasure that David um, had committed, um, it's interesting to me right before it says David had displeased God, there's a place where I think maybe David had a little bit of recognition that what he did may have been wrong because he sent word back to Joab and said, don't let this upset you. Don't let this upset you that you were an accomplice to murder. No problem. No problem. However, he then goes on, and I think we can see all of this in ourselves. When we feel guilt, there are times when we just want to rationalize it or justify it. David goes on to say, well, the swords devour one as well as another. Oh, oh well. Do we ever find ourselves in that space where we want to try to justify what we've done? So we know then that David takes Bathsheba as wife. She gives birth to a son. And then we move into chapter 12. So I don't know what David thought at that time. I don't know if that's the counselor in me, for those of you that aren't here. I'm the counselor on staff here. And I always want to think, like, what's David thinking about? Was he thinking, shoo? Got away with this one. Nobody knows outside of Joab that I gave this order. I should be okay. I should be all right. I think I think I covered it all up. 
And yet God sends prophet Nathan to rebuke David. Nathan tells David a story about two men, a rich man and a poor man. And the poor man had one lamb that he treasured, that he nurtured, that's all his family had, whereas the rich man had many lambs. And so a traveler comes to the rich man looking for food, and the rich man refuses to take any sheep from his flock. Instead, he takes the poor man's only lamb and prepares it for the traveler. David is outraged as he listens to the story that prophet Nathan is telling him. He can't believe that he this rich man would take from the poor man rather than from his own abundance. David goes, I mean, he is fired up at this point. David says the rich man should die and restore the lamb fourfold. And Nathan says, do you know what Nathan says? You are the man. You are the man, David. Wow. How quickly things change. That David had all the blessings that God had given him and yet still chose to move into sin after sin. Then we see David's response in 2 Samuel 12, 13 and 14. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. David recognizes his sin and he is forgiven. But we also see that there are consequences and scars because of our sin. And then as we move into Psalm 51, we see David's heart. We see that place of repentance and the pain, recognizing the pain that his sin had caused. So let's look at that. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from inequity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I have brought forth inequity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sin and blot out all my inequities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness. O God, O God of my salvation and my tongue, 
will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praises. For you will not delight in sacrifices or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. So as we look into our own lives today... Where is sin and unforgiveness causing damage with our relationship with God, with others, even ourselves? Just as David went before God with a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart, we too can go before the one who desires nothing more for us to repent of our sin and walk in the fullness of forgiveness, to walk in that joy of our salvation. Now, before I move on with this, I want to just make sure I'm I'm talking to the right people. I just want to make sure that all of us have sinned in the last 24 hours. Are we all good on that? Okay. All right. If not, maybe Ted has an extra donut out there or something for you. And I also want, and you'll hear me repeat some of these truths, but I think it's so critical to be grounded in the truth of the gospel because those are the places where we find freedom, especially when we think about forgiveness. So the truth that I want you just to hold on, marinate in them, is that we are made in the image of God and we have value. Simple as that. Now, it may not always be simple to hold on to, and we'll talk about that. And that our sin does not diminish our value. So crucial to remember. That we have a Savior in Jesus Christ who calls us to repentance. We have a Heavenly Father who sent His Son Jesus to take on our sin, past, present, and future. There's no surprises with God, by the way. Um, to die for us. To cleanse us of our sin. And that we can live in freedom and the joy because of that forgiveness, and that the Holy Spirit empowers us to live righteously, that we can't do it on our own. So those are some of the truths that I want you just to keep thinking about and and remembering those things. So, of course, you know, when we think about forgiveness, there's like a hundred different paths I could go down. Don't worry, I only chose one, so we won't be here all day. Um... And it's that area of self-forgiveness. Everett Worthington, who is a Christian psychologist, um, talks about in the process of self-forgiveness, you are both perpetrator and victim of an offense. You try to believe the best about yourself, and you want to act according to your own values, priorities, beliefs, But none of us can escape the reality of harm and disappointment that we cause others. In fact, transgressions rarely affect just one person. There's always collateral damage. We sin against ourselves, people we value, and God. Isn't that exactly what we saw in David's life? He left a lot of collateral damage. 
So we need to begin the self-forgiveness process by looking beyond ourselves. We need to seek the forgiveness available in God through Jesus to restore wholeness to our fragmented lives. There was an interesting self, uh, a scientific study. There's all these scientific studies now about forgiveness. Sometimes I want to go, folks, that's been around for a long time, but there seems to like be this big surge now about forgiveness, which is lovely if they remember Jesus. Um, but anyway, this self-forgiveness uh, study on, on um, a study on self-forgiveness concluded excessive blame leads to psychological, social, and spiritual maladjustment. It introduces a theme of rigidity to our lives that invades our thoughts, feelings, behaviors, and relationships. Have you ever noticed how hard it can be to achieve personal growth or connect socially when you can't forgive yourself? Does it seem like people, things, and events that once brought joy to your life have lost their luster? In our distress, we feel distant from people we value stifled in our spiritual lives, and and unable to accomplish our personal goals. Our inflexibility makes us incapable of achieving a stable sense of happiness. All we know is what we did, whom we wronged, and how badly we feel. All we know is what we did, whom we wronged, and how badly we feel. Can you relate to that? Have there been times in your life where that seems to be all-consuming? I've certainly seen this in my life and the lives of many as I've had the privilege of walking that journey of forgiveness in the sacred place of a counseling room. And just (laughs) describes the guilt of our sin, if not dealt with, can cause great pain within ourselves and our relationships with God and others. We often begin those that series of self-condemning lies, and that shame begins to enfold us. And again, if you're a believer in Jesus, you can agree Christ came to die for your sins, and that you're forgiven, that you don't have to keep going before God and saying, oh, please forgive me, please forgive me, and keep confessing the same sin over and over. God says, forgiven. And yet, why is it that sometimes within us, We continually do that yes, but I know the truth of, of what, what my faith says and yet, but I just don't know if God can forgive me or maybe others that I have offended haven't forgiven me. So then how can I forgive myself? So it's a journey. It's a journey that we all often take. I do believe that there are those times when we go before the Lord and we feel that instant freedom. We feel that instant joy once again restored. But sometimes we journey. And I think about Christ. You know, sometimes when you're preparing for for, for speaking, you like have these things that pop into your head. And you're like, is that you, Lord? Or where did that come from? But one of the things I thought about was the journey to the cross was painful, was painful, and it was a journey. They didn't just go grab Jesus, nail him to the cross, and say, boom, you're done. Oh, no. He had to go before the council. He was betrayed. He was whipped. He was nailed to the cross. I mean, there's so many areas of pain that Jesus encountered 
along the way. And he was perfect and without blemish. And so we've got to remember that sometimes we're going to journey. We're going to journey and that you, God will use that journey to help mold us, to shape us into who he desires and for his glory. As I mentioned, Everett Worthington, who is this Christian psychologist, um, has these lovely models of, of forgiveness. Um, we don't have time to get into that today. But I want to share with you some concepts from those models that might be helpful for you um, as you consider that, that journey of forgiveness. The first thing he says is you need to decide to forgive. We've got to make a decision, just like we make decisions along the way to sin, we also got to make a decision to, to seek God's forgiveness. That, you know, as we repent, we turn away from, from the sin and go back toward God. And so that involves a pledge that your behavior will not be aimed at revenge against yourself and that you'll try to treat yourself as a valued and valuable person even though you see your flaws. He also says you've got to seek and receive that divine forgiveness. We've got to go before our Heavenly Father. We've got to know that Christ forgives us. And if you are here today and you've never made that decision to follow Christ, there will be people at the end of service in the prayer room that would be delighted to talk with you about a decision to follow Christ. The other area that Worthington suggests, and I think goes right along with with the Bible teaches us, is that we repair relationships if possible. Repair relationships, knowing that our sin has caused pain to others, that you may want to consider confessing and seeking forgiveness from the person you harmed. If prudent, if possible, sometimes that may not be prudent or possible, but if prudent and possible, to to go before that person and, and confess and seek forgiveness. Other times, it may be a place where you share that confession with a trusted friend. Worthington has some some great helps and ways to help develop a confession and, and asking for forgiveness. Rethink ruminations. As, as we said, that... We often just think about whom we wronged, what our actions have done, and that it's all-consuming. And Worthington, I like the way he, he talks about ruminations. He said, rumination drowns us in a sea of repetitive, emotion-focused questions, doubt, and fear. When we ruminate, we focus on the worst parts of our lives. So the challenge today is what Romans 12 encourages us to do is to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. How can we go about focusing in on the truth of our identity in Christ, focusing in on the truth of our forgiveness, focusing in on the freedom and the joy that comes with that, rather than ruminating on on those doubts and those fears and those places where we struggle with really walking in the identity of Christ. 
and finally resolve to live a righteous life empowered by the Holy Spirit. We can't do it on our own. You know, you might, you might sin and you might say, I'm never going to do that again. And lo and behold, do you find yourself doing it again? And that's where we've got to call upon the Lord. We know that the Holy Spirit says we are clothed in Christ's righteousness. And so it's in that space where we can begin to live a life of righteousness. Not perfection, righteousness. We're never going to get perfection, guys, here on this side of heaven. Um, but also recognizing that we do that together with others, that our relationship with God and with others are valuable tools to help us to build a healthy self-concept and a righteous life. Growth often occurs in the product of community. We're going to hear from Rebecca Snyder in just a moment, who um, is brave today. She is going to share her journey of brokenness and shame and forgiveness. So brave. And so, friends, may we be a community that are that is known to embrace forgiveness, that really encourages encourages that honesty, that authenticity, and repentance, and to be able to share that good news with others. So I invite Rebecca to, to come and share with us. And following Rebecca's testimony, um, we will do a reaffirmation of baptism with Rebecca, but also it's going to be open to all. We're all going to have that opportunity, that call to confession and reaffirmation of our baptism. So Rebecca, come and, and share with us. Um, So what I'm here to tell you guys about is my journey through brokenness and pain. Um, It was a very difficult experience to go through, but it's not very difficult to talk about anymore because of the healing that God can bring to our pain. Because what I've learned and what I hope you can get from this is that when we accept our brokenness and allow God to walk with us through it, then we find grace and redemption through Jesus Christ. So the shame that I internalized for a large portion of my life was the result of sins that I struggled with and relationships with people that I hurt um, that led me to believe that I was unlovable and unforgivable. Um, I covered up my shame by building a wall around my emotions so that people wouldn't be able to poke through and see the pain that I was feeling. Um, On the outside, I seemed confident and put together, but on the inside, I felt this deep alienation between myself and others that uh, prevented me from connecting and forming authentic relationships. Uh, The feeling of shame and and separation reached a peak about seven years ago, which is when I came to the, the conclusion that conviction, or that shame was the result of conviction through the Holy Spirit, and so without God, then there'd be no shame. So my rejection of God and the shame that I was feeling led to about four months of depression, um, anger, self-hatred, abuse of people that loved me, um, and this overwhelming feel of hopelessness. But eventually my parents forced me to start going to therapy, and 
I reached a point where the depression subsided so that I could begin a six-year journey of rediscovering my faith. I came to a point of feeling absolved in my guilt through confession of God, but I still had this overwhelming feeling of having to hide because of what I'd done. Um, And I continued to keep God at arm's length out of fear of what he would do or make me do to bring me to freedom. Uh, Throughout this whole time, though, I knew that um, the freedom that I was craving would only come through confession to and vulnerability with people who would be willing to walk through the struggle with me. Um, I'd even have these dreams where I would confess to someone and then I'd feel this freedom. And then I'd wake up and realize that I was still trapped. Um, So, uh, I mean, I felt like this, the level of brokenness that I had would leave people to judge me and reject me, and I wasn't ready to let them into my life to see what I was going through. But throughout this whole time, God was continuing to work in my life by surrounding me with people who could minister to me, and then by also growing and preparing me to do what I thought was deathbed level stuff. So about two, I'm sorry, back in February was when the craziest month of my life started. Um... So I don't remember what led me to do it, but I was just lying there in bed, and I was like, God, you got to do something, because I'm stuck, and I'm tired of telling people that I'm on this six-year journey of rediscovering my faith, because that gets old. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, yeah, and on the outside, that might seem like it was brave, because when we tell God to take control of our life, it usually requires us to do some pretty difficult things, and I had a lot of difficult things I'd have to do. But really, I think it was out of frustration, and it was just impulsive because I didn't really think that God would do anything. And I also didn't really, part of me didn't believe that God even existed. Um, Well, fast forward about three weeks later to March 14th, I ran into someone at my work, or I ran into someone while I was at work that brought back all the emotions and the feelings that I had repressed for seven years. Um, And then two weeks later, I went to a sermon with a friend And it was one of those sermons where the pastor's talking straight to you and you're standing under this big spotlight. And the sermon was about how you can't fully experience the glory of God if you continue to cover up your brokenness and your shame. So obviously that was, yeah. Um, So as I was sitting there feeling the scorching heat of conviction and trying really, really hard not to cry, I made this promise to God that if anyone asked me about the things that I was covering up, then I would tell them everything. And right after this sermon, my friend, who could tell that I was really uncomfortable and knew that there were things that I was hiding, she told me that um, if I ever wanted to talk about it, she'd be willing to listen. So this was right around the end of the semester, and I was planning to just wait until after exams. But throughout that week, I just started talking to God again. Um, So I'd lay awake in bed for hours and just run through everything that I had to talk about. And I came to this point of peace where I felt like God had given me the courage to be able to talk. So then that Thursday, I started talking, and this turned into five very emotionally draining days of difficult conversations with people that I'd hurt, and then also my family members, and it was a confession, and also just rebuilding relationships with the people that I'd hurt through my sin. Um, And then from those five days, I realized that the shame that I'd internalized for seven years was gone. Um... So the freedom that I got from that allowed me to continue to be open with people in my life and leading up to the point when I told Pastor Drew that I'd be willing to share this in front of a congregation. Um, So what I learned from all this is that God can use our confession to people and our vulnerability to, um, 
to expose the struggles that we're feeling because when we when we tell people what we're going through, then it releases that hold of the struggle that it releases the grip that the struggle has over our lives and allows us to move towards redemption and healing from that. Um, yeah, so it still amazes me by how crazy that whole series of events was. And I know that it's not the result of God, or that it would not have been possible without God's divine timing and grace. Um, and I think it's incredible, too, how that even though we reject God and we ignore, ignore his guidance on our lives, he continues to um, to to surround us with people that can help us. And also he builds the foundation for the freedom that we can attain if we choose to let go of our shame, invite him into that shame, and then submit. So little by little, I've rebuilt this wall that I had around my emotions so that I can begin to process everything. Um, I'm still learning a lot about God and learning about myself right now, and I'm still very much a broken person. But I know that throughout it all, God will continue to walk with me through my brokenness so I can fully experience his glory. And that redemption is available to all of us, as Rebecca describes her journey. And so now we will move to the baptismal font.